I think it's a fair question to ask communities to think about where do they want their wealth to go? You as an individual have options about where your wealth goes. And you can choose for your wealth to go into a bank account in Hong Kong for investments. You can choose to put it on the main street. Hello, this is Ro Roots and I am Boyan Fierst. Every week, we bring you a different voice to help us understand the changing nature of rural Canada. This week, that voice is Dr. Ryan Gibson, a geographer at St. Mary's University in Halifax in Nova Scotia. The question Ryan is interested in is, what if rural Canada did not need any more money from anybody in order to have a sustainable future? If you think that sounds like science fiction, stay with us as Ryan walks us through some options that could get some rural communities a step closer to financial independence. I recorded my conversation with Ryan in his office in Halifax. We started with me asking him, what is rural? What is rural? Oh, heavens. Big question. Uh, There are so many ways to define rural, and it can be done everything from what you feel is rural to kind of lived experiences. We've got technical definitions based on distance and the number of people. We've got everything under the stars, which makes it really interesting, but also sometimes a bit complicated because we sometimes are comparing apples to oranges. But for myself, I tend to use a definition from Statistics Canada, which indicates that it's usually less than 10,000 people living in a community. But really, at the end of the day, we're looking at areas with small populations and typically large distances to urban centers. Those are the key characteristics for me. That kind of a statistical definition has obvious shortcomings. The size of the population is hardly an accurate reflection of rurality. Geography, proximity to large urban centers, transportation networks, the kinds of employment available in a community all contribute to rural character of any given place. 9,000 people outside of the Toronto area and have a very different lifestyle than 9,000 people living in northern Canada. The dynamics of what's available on your main street, what you can do in terms of services and amenities is dramatically different. And so we've got places that are near urban centers. We have places that are kind of in the middle of nowhere. um, And we've got um, others that are kind of halfway between um, the periphery and the urban core. Um, And so what we think of rural in Newfoundland is sometimes dramatically different than what's rural in British Columbia or rural in Manitoba versus rural in the Yukon. And you have provinces where 10,000 almost puts you into the category of a city. That's right. So if you look to places like Prince Edward Island, um, small communities there um, are much maybe smaller than you would see in in southern Ontario. I remember being at a meeting in the Yukon about a decade ago where we were talking about small community development and and one of the, the leaders from one community stood up and said, you know what, I think I'm at the wrong table. I think we're too big. Um, you know, we're about a thousand people. And the lady next to her said, well, if you're too big, we're way too big. We've got 2,000 people and, and we think we feel... We feel like this is the perfect fit for us. And so it really depends on what's in one's community and how one um, envisions what, where they are and what they do. And it's interesting because it's not just about a definition either. Right? No. I mean, those definitions matter in, in a whole 
bunch of ways how you craft policy towards those places. That's right. And the other piece of it is this whole notion we have in Canada, and we were just chatting about this, a really rich literacy um, around writing about rural. But sometimes we write about a romanticized rural that hasn't existed in 50, 70, or even 100 years. And so the likes of W.O. Mitchell, Margaret Atwood, are, are talking about a rural um, and conveying a rural that existed at one point, but that rural hasn't existed for many years. Um, and this is becoming increasingly important as we start to look at urban people, and in Canada, an increasing number of people living in the cities that have never been to rural. We look at new immigrants that are moving into Canada that are largely coming from urban backgrounds. And so for those individuals, what do they think about when they hear rural? What does it convey in terms of a meaning? Um, and that can be very different than what people living in rural believe. And it can also be very different from public policy. It can be very different from the way in which we do development. And so at, at any given point, we're, we tend to be juggling definitions of what is rural, who is rural, what does it matter for small communities? Just how much did the things change? A good place to start looking for an answer to that question is the Statistics Canada website. There's a remarkable set of numbers there. They track rural population in Canada from 1851 to 2011. In 1851, the year Canada issued its very first postage stamp, almost 90% of Canadians lived in the country. By the time Prince William and the Duchess of Cambridge toured Canada in 2011, those numbers were reversed. Today, there's only 19% of Canadians living in the rural Canada. Worldwide, less than half of the humanity lives a rural life. While those statistics are accurate, they do hide the fact that the actual number of people living in rural Canada has been growing. We've gone from a 70 to 80 year period where more people lived in rural than lived in urban. Um, but the other things we, we need to think about, although the population of rural Canada continues to grow, our actual percentage of the total population is actually declining. And that's not to say that every rural community in Canada is getting smaller, but it just means that urban Canada is growing at a much faster rate than our small towns. Um, and so we have all sorts of misconceptions out there. But when we look to those changes, we start to see some fundamental things like changes in agriculture. We used to see family farms where you would have multiple people employed on a farm. And we're now seeing, due to mechanization, a decrease in the number of people that are working on farms. Farms are getting much larger, involving fewer people, um, and become very much big businesses. We've seen the same in the natural resource extraction industries, timber, iron ore, coal. Computers and technology are doing the work that 100 people used to do. And today we, we need fewer and fewer people, and the people we do need tend to be less around the physical labor and more around technology and how to operate the machines, the systems, and the computers. Um, we tend to have focused on getting resources out of rural communities and sending them somewhere else. Um, historically, we were gathering resources for our own communities and maybe um, trading with neighboring communities in the province or maybe in the next province. But now it's about trading internationally. It's competing with China. It's competing with India. Can you produce your the widget better, cheaper than somewhere else? Um, and we've forgotten that we're not competing with the town down the road. 
we're competing with a town across the world now to do that. Some of those communities are thriving. Some communities have figured out how to compete in this globalized world, how to use technology to their advantage, how to ship their product or their commodity um, into the international market and are doing phenomenally well. But for every community that does phenomenally well, we tend to have communities that aren't doing phenomenally well, that are struggling with the challenges. They're struggling with trying to find a livelihood, to try to maintain the community infrastructure, to ensure that people can find a livelihood. Um, and there are many communities across Canada um, that fall between those two examples, between those that are thriving and those that are, are challenged by this new dynamic. Um, and unfortunately, one of the key challenges that we encounter is that based on this dynamic and the diversity of our small towns, we can't take a single policy approach to facilitating their survival or facilitating economic growth. Every community, every region is so unique um, that we really need to ensure that we don't have a cookie cutter, one policy to, to help those, those communities. And that's a problem. It is. Historically, we've had a single policy. Um, we have one policy that's created maybe for the country, maybe for a region of the country. Some communities fit really well into those policies where the next community may not fit at all, even though they have a very similar challenge or opportunity in front of them. For communities based around single natural resource, adapting to the economic and social changes is difficult. Right across the country, those communities are struggling to cope with local, national and global forces determined to tear them apart, and they face difficult questions. The timber industry in British Columbia or the mining industry in northern Manitoba, that's why your town showed up on the map, was because of that extractive industry. But when that industry disappears, and with all natural resource-based industries, there are ups and downs, the natural fluctuations, there are challenges. What do you do when your commodity, timber, fish, minerals, no longer holds its value or is no longer available? It's, it's simply exhausted. What, how does a community transition away from often a single large employer that has been in the community for 30, 40, or even 50 years? How, how do you transition into something different? What do you transition to? How do you transition? These are challenges that community leaders, economic development people, social organizations um, have to grapple with to figure out what is their future? What, what does it look like and, and who is in that future and what do they do? When researchers, economic developers and policymakers try to answer those questions, they usually focus on economic diversification or secondary processing of the available resource as the answers. The reason I wanted to talk to Ryan is that he was interested in a very different approach. So I wanted to look at, really, the intersection of philanthropy and rural development or sustainability, which is kind of strange bedfellows. They're not something that you hear about in the local paper regularly. They tend to have two very different audiences. People are working in both of those areas passionately but rarely do they come together. Um, and so this all emerged for me based on the notion that this generalization that rural communities were dependent on external resources. So whether it was the external market or government providing a, a subsidy or community grants, whatever it might be, but that small towns were dependent on somebody else at the end of the day. And this works really well when commodity prices are high works really well when governments are flush with money, 
But in the last five to ten years, we've seen financial markets crash. We've seen austerity measures program introduced. And so when financing becomes tight, what happens to those places that are perceived as being dependent on external funds? And so this started a, an interest in myself around philanthropy and how that might work. Um, and once I scratched the surface, I ended up um, scratching a lot um, and looking at it not just in, in the prairies, but also across Canada and the Atlantic region um, to really understand how this phenomenon is working. And to my surprise, it, it actually is quite um, common in many places, but not everywhere. And so I started to look at particularly one agent of philanthropy, because there's so many different types of philanthropy out there, whether it's helping out your neighbor shovel snow, whether it's delivering meals on wheels, whether it's volunteering for the local soccer club, to things like giving money to a charity or an international development agency. There's a whole gamut of types of activities. And I wanted to focus on one type of activity that was community-led. And so I focused on community foundations. Community foundations are charities, so they're registered by the Canada Revenue Agency as a charity, uh, and they their main purpose in a general sense is to collect funds on behalf of their community or their region. The funds that they collect are typically not spent. The funds they collect are invested into almost a kind of a, a communal bank account, and the interest that can be generated from that investment is what has been what the foundation actually spends on a yearly basis. So the money that they get, they don't spend, they invest it. Any interest that they can generate, they then turn around and spend on local priorities based on whatever their community or their region is. Uh, and this is a really different model um, of how to look around sustainability and regional development. So they essentially operate on a model of an endowment. That's right. That's yeah. So you could give $10, $100, thousand dollars and the community foundation would then take that money they would issue you a tax receipt which you can use towards your personal income tax um, but that money would go to an endowment and the endowment might be invested in a, a variety of different things like mutual funds and other investments the money that can be generated from that endowment through the interest is eligible for the foundation to spend and to be granted out to different activities in their community and it could be granted out to various different priorities depending on um, the realities of that community. So we see foundations supporting things like community infrastructure, skating rinks, football um, pitches. We see them supporting things like childhood education, um, supporting either people getting training to be in early childhood education or supporting the physical space that they need to, to develop those services. We see foundations often giving out scholarship and grant money to post-secondary students uh, to pursue a career upgrading. Uh, we also see them supporting things like hospitals, social service supports, um, the environment, um, environmental programming. And so it can be quite, quite diversified. But at, at its core, the foundation's board of directors chooses their priorities based on their community. This is a, a fundamental different model of community development or regional development and in the sense that the money that is collected by foundations typically comes from people that live in that community or have previously lived in that community that still feel that they are attached um, to that community. And so former residents that might have moved away but are still feeling emotionally or physically connected to that community might leave them money. Um, and so this is not 
relying on government grants or company grants or private sector grants. This is reutilizing the wealth that's already in your community in a different manner. The first community foundation in Canada was established in Winnipeg in 1921. That first community foundation followed an American model. We now have about 200 community foundations in Canada, and almost half of them are based in small towns. Originally, community foundations were an urban phenomenon. It wasn't until 1990s that we saw an explosion of community foundations across rural Canada. Interestingly, the community foundation phenomenon in Canada is still concentrated in Manitoba. One in four foundations actually is in Manitoba. But Manitoba doesn't have 25% of Canada's population, not even anywhere near it. Um, but the phenomenon, particularly in small towns in Manitoba, was, was really through a challenge program that a private foundation established in the 1980s. And that was the Thomas Sill Foundation. Um, Thomas Sill was an accountant who worked in a number of small communities outside of uh, Winnipeg in Manitoba. And upon his death, he left his estate to support the creation of small-town foundations um, in the communities where he was uh, serving as an accountant. But they weren't just simply gifted money, they had to raise money. So for every dollar they raised, his estate would give them another dollar, up to $100,000. And so this worked really well for the first six communities, uh, and the Thomas Hill Foundation then decided to expand it, and I think they did 16 additional communities. So all of a sudden now you have 22 small-town foundations in Manitoba, and as this started to happen, you start to get um, what I would think of as the hockey war mentality started to enter. And if, if one community can do it, well, we're better than that community, so we must be able to do it. And you started to see this just popping up everywhere across the southern part of Manitoba. Um, and so now there are 42-plus community foundations outside of Winnipeg in the province, um, where across Canada there are you know, just under 200. This is a really interesting concept to you taking community wealth, you're keeping in the community, reinvesting it. That's right. How generous are Canadians? Well, we, surprisingly, are very generous. Um, but the rates change across the country. So not every province is the same level of generosity as other provinces. So when we look to things like Statistics Canada measures, charitableness, and how much money we give, we tend to find that Newfoundlanders and Nova Scotians give more than anyone else in the country. Sorry, I should rephrase that. There are more people that are giving in Newfoundland and Labrador than anywhere else in the country, but they're not giving a lot of money. So the average donation is actually very small, but more people are active in giving small donations. Where in other provinces you see bigger donations by a smaller number of people. So the dynamic changes all across the country, and then you've got other places like in Quebec, where many of our colleagues that do research on this in, in that province would suggest that it's missed in the data. When people are asked about their charitableness, they don't think about it as a charity. They just shovel their neighbor's front lawn in the winter or their driveway because they're an elderly person and it's just a good deed. And they don't think about that as being a charitable act, and so they don't record it. And so we have very, very active population in Canada engaged in philanthropy, whether it's $5 once a year or $500 um, twice a year, which is good news for this notion of philanthropy and regional development. 
But we also have to keep in mind that when we talk about philanthropy as a broader concept, we are talking about cash donations, but we are also talking about volunteering. That's right. We're also, t- and just within that cash donation, you're also things like the church and donations to religious establishments, the donations to hospitals and, and medical issues, um, and international development. Those tend to be the three really big um, recipients of donations, the church, medicine, and health-related, uh, as well as international development activities. And so things like community development in small rural communities isn't really at the top of the radar uh, for most people. Um, but that'll change over time. Do we know uh, what is the percentage of Canadian cash charitable giving that goes to community foundations? Not really. Um, the dilemma for this is that um, you can imagine this when you go to fill out, and as everyone loves to do, their taxes. When you fill out your taxes, you might have donated to some charities. You would record the amount that you donated and the receipt that you received on your tax form. But not everyone reports them. Sometimes you forget, sometimes you get half of them, sometimes you think I'll save them for the next year, but the next year you forget them. It happens. So we know how much money people have donated based on what they report on their tax forms. But we don't necessarily know where it got donated to. And so this is one of the challenges around the data that's out there. How do, how do we pull the strings to get a, a really a much better understanding of what's happening. And that'll come. Um, the other is that, and a set of information that we've been using, is that community foundations have their own data. They often forget about it because in the university we call it data, but they call it bookkeeping. And they know who donated. They know how much they donated. They know if they're a repeat donor. They know where that donor lives in comparison to where the foundation is. And so they know if they were to look at their, their, their numbers, what percent of their donors actually live in their community? Are they mostly elderly people? Are they mostly young people? Are they giving one lump sum as part of their estate planning? Or are they giving a monthly contribution? So we often get discouraged by the fact that things like Statistics Canada can't give us that detail. But in actuality, the main street... They've got their own information. We just need to connect with them and give them a bit of a voice um, and help them to figure out what's actually in their own information sets. And this is where I think a unique opportunity emerges that for myself at a university who often has um, students that are really curious, that have good skills, that want to put them to good use in a real-world scenario, can kind of step in and be a bit of a bridge to help some of these organizations actually dig into some of this information, um, help them to understand what it is that's happening, if there are patterns or trends that over, the, over the years, and how they may be better able to, to capitalize on some of those activities. So far, so good. We have community foundations funded through charitable donations from the residents. The foundations determine the spending priorities with the most impact on their communities. The problem is that as charities, community foundations are specifically prohibited from supporting economic development projects. Eh, sort of. Community foundations cannot give money for business startup or economic development activities, but they can support things like community infrastructure. 
that might be utilized for new businesses to start. It might be able to open up a daycare in the community, which would then allow women to maybe reintroduce themselves into the workforce, which is truly an economic development activity. Um, but they need to focus on things like social development, community development, environmental development or sustainability, um, but by law they cannot do maybe those things that we would normally read about in the paper that would be classified as economic development. The Canada Revenue Agency does allow um, all charities, including community foundations, to do community economic development. And so there's a definition around what is community economic development versus economic development, um, and it's a bit of a, as you can imagine, a bit of a gray area, it's a fuzzy line on good days. And so there are some foundations that are very um, progressive that are doing community economic development activities. Um, and so that might be something like the microloans or some sort of a program of that nature. Um, but for most community foundations, they would not be doing that sort of work. That's um, beyond their capacity at that stage. So we've been doing research for the past couple of years to understand how do community foundations who are charitable organizations actually interact with regional economic development agencies and actors. And so we've been out talking to foundations across Canada um, and what we've discovered from our experience is that very few are actually talking to each other. We did discover that both have very similar mandates, both typically have very similar aspirational goals and the changes that they're looking to see in their community, but very rarely do they actually work together. Why is that? I think part of it is where they came from. Community um, foundations are very much a philanthropic, charitable activity, and that's how they're viewed often, where regional development is seen as a, a different set of actors and a different set of skills. Um, but at the end of the day, they're both looking at the long-term survivability of their community, they're both looking at enhancing the quality of life and the livelihoods of the people that live there. And whether they come at it from a charitable perspective or versus a, a regional economic development perspective, their goal is the same at the end of the day. And so there's a huge opportunity for them to collaborate and work together. Um, but for the most part, the evidence suggests that at the moment that's not the case. The fact that those organizations tend not to collaborate is a loss to communities they operate in. Ryan is quick to point out that it is not just about money and immediate development needs. The longer a community foundation operates, the better the chances that it will build a substantial endowment. Ryan explains that the ability to access significant funds independent of government and private sector offers a community a chance to think long term. Their endowments might be $100,000, and it could go up to probably close to $9 million in some communities. It means that on a yearly basis that some communities are getting more revenue derived from their endowment at the community foundation than the municipality collects in taxes. It's a fairly substantive amount of money, um, and part of this... Um, as you can imagine, when you first start to receive money, communities have lots of deficits, whether it's infrastructure, whether it's social deficits, environmental deficits that need to be addressed. But as you get going, um, you start to fill the, the potholes and the, and the leaky roof and you put up new playground equipment. Um, then communities actually have to have a really serious conversation about what is their priority. Fixing small things is easy. But where do you want to be in 20 years? What kind of quality of life do you want to have for the next generation? Those are big questions that a lot of foundations are now having to answer. 
Um, and it's, it's a great thing to challenge a community to think about. So those conversations are happening? Uh, they're happening under various different questions. Um, sometimes it's around what, what's the next priority? Or how do we get the biggest bang for the investment dollar? And so they're now being strategic around, or even more strategic, they were always strategic, but being more strategic around how they spend the, the money that they do receive. Can they leverage it? Um, and this has been one of the really interesting parts of the research we've been finding is community often used to go cap in hand to government, almost like the poor relative saying, you know, please, government, would you please support our initiative? We can't do it on our own. We, the only way to do it would be through your assistance. And what we start to see now is that communities with some of this money can actually go to government and say, we'd like to see you as a partner. We're no longer a client of yours. We're, we want to be a partner. We have some money on the table. Um, and we'd like to negotiate how this might work. And that's a fundamentally different approach to how development has been taking place in many of our small towns. Ryan believes that community foundations are a part of an answer for some communities trying to address their long-term sustainability. They're also a mechanism to capture some of the wealth that was created in those communities over time. This is in many ways a very personal matter, and it has to do with a concept Ryan calls transfer of wealth. This is the notion that when, let's take my family for example, when my folks pass away, all of the money that they've collected through their income, through various purchases, will most likely, fingers crossed, be left to my sister and I. I'm hoping I'm still in the will, but you never know. <laughs> What'll happen is that upon my parents' death, they will provide their estate to my sister and I. My sister and I do, do not live in the community where that wealth was generated. I live in Halifax, my sister lives in Calgary. I grew up in small town Manitoba. So upon my parents' death, their entire estate, their, their wealth that they've collected from that community will completely disappear. And that wealth will likely never come back. So as people start to get older and the average age gets creeping up and up, the more that the transfer of wealth is really important. And this is the wealth that goes between generations. If we could capture 5% of that wealth... So we're not saying we need to have it all, or even most of it, but even just a small percent, 1% to 5% of that wealth. That would give most communities, you know, with 2,000 people, probably an endowment of around a million to $3 million. You can do a lot with $3 million. Um, and again, if people start to know about it, you start to get more and more people buying into this notion. And that endowment that's held on behalf of everybody in the community gets larger and larger. And you're able to provide grants to do more innovative things. You move beyond the deficit stuff and you can do some really innovative things. And those are the innovative things that start to bring young people back to those communities. The quality of life goes up. The opportunities for young people go up. The opportunities for raising your family increase. These are the sorts of things that on a long-term basis can actually start to bring those young people back to those small towns. Maybe not to your own hometown, but maybe to another small town down the road um, from your community. So the generation, this intergenerational transfer of wealth is critically important. The other part of it is it's kind of like a, a ticking time bomb. Some places have a lot of time left on the clock. Others don't have very much. 
Um, because once that wealth leaves, it's gone. So if everybody in your community is 85 years and older, you probably have less than 10 years to have a strategy, a plan, and to implement it to collect that wealth. If the average age is in the 50s, you probably have maybe 15 to 20, maybe 30 or 40 years to collect that wealth, and you've got a bit of time on your side. But we have a lot of rural communities that have higher average ages than urban centers where the transfer of wealth study, the time sensitivity that remains is in the 10 to 15 year mark. It's now or never. Unfortunately, most of those communities either do not have a foundation or have a foundation, but may not, that foundation may not have a plan for how to attract the transfer of wealth between generations. Maybe they haven't thought about it. Maybe they've thought about it, but it's a really difficult thing to ask your neighbor, you know, when you pass away, would you mind uh, giving us some money? And oh, by the way, can you pass me my coffee now or the sugar for my tea? Uh, it's an awkward conversation to have. Um, and so some places just haven't had the conversation. Some haven't thought about it. Others don't even know about it at all. But what we do know is that there is a time sensitivity. Every community has a different one. And once you've passed it, you've missed the boat. And there's no way to bring the boat back to the community. The other piece of information that goes with the story that doesn't make it even prettier is that we don't know when the magic timeline is. Our colleagues in the United States have done some phenomenal research around mapping out by county when the transfer of wealth will take place. And so it allows counselors and business people and social organizations to figure out that they've got 5, 10, or 20 years left. They've done great work on this. Unfortunately, in Canada, we don't have access to the same amount of data at that local level that they do in the United States. And so we can't produce similar estimates yet. We're working on it. Um, and they become really, really useful. You can imagine taking a map of your home province and looking at it almost like with a, a street light color coding. And those that are green in color have 20 years. Those in yellow have 10 years. And if your community is in red, you only have five years left to collect that wealth. That's an amazing tool that helps to facilitate the conversation, um, to serve as a catalyst for people coming together um, and strategizing how to, how to capture it. But for most of our communities, we don't know when that's going to take place. Most are ill-prepared to, to do it. Um, and it's not a conversation that we have on the main street. It's not a conversation we have our families often. And it's not a conversation that government's involved in at the moment, which is a bit ironic in the sense that the best thing for many governments, provincially or federal, would be to have every community with a community endowment. The more money you have locally, the more things people locally can do without the need to have to go to government. Community foundations could be a great step towards financial independence and sustainability for at least some rural communities. Having a source of funding that the community controls clearly has many benefits. So I wanted to know, how do you go about creating a successful community foundation? Community foundations are about long-term financial endowment building. And so you have to be able to convince people of how to do that. And I remember back to a meeting in a small community in rural Manitoba where I asked people, you know, how do you get successful at doing this? How do you build a really good foundation? You know, if you were to write a recipe 
for somebody else that's just starting. What do you? What are your ingredients? And the chair of the board kind of looked down and chuckled and said to me, we need two very popular people in the community that everyone respects. I said, that's great. What do they do? And he goes, you need one to be the board chair, you need one to be six feet under and leave you money. And he kind of chuckled and I said, and you're the board chair? And he said, yes, I'm the board chair. <laughs> but that's it. How do you start them? It's, it's around having someone that has some leadership to provide the money that provides legitimacy. That if, if Mrs. Murphy provides $1,000, that everyone in the community says, well, I really trusted Mrs. Murphy, and she had a good head on her shoulders, and if she was willing to leave some money for the community, maybe I should also do that. Um, and this those, those trickle-down effects that start to happen. Um, and this becomes really, really important when we start to factor in aging to these communities, because we know that young people are, are typically very mobile, and they're mobile for education, for employment, for life experiences, to travel, to see the world. They also, we also know that there's a lot of competition for their attention. We'd love for them to come back to small communities, but there's also opportunities in urban cities that might draw to them. So we need to be competitive for that. Given Canadian geography, especially Canadian rural geography, which is massive. Mm-hmm. What do you do? Do you have every community with a foundation? Do you have a regional foundation? Do you have a provincial foundation? We've got small towns of under 300 people with an independent foundation. We've got provincial foundations. We've got regional foundations. And at the end of the day, they all can work. It really depends on the people and what they want to achieve. So if you are an individual foundation, it tends to mean that there's a lot of heavy lifting. You need to adhere to all the rules and regulations of the Canada Revenue Agency. You have annual reporting to do. You have tax receipts to do. You have all of your donor relations to do. You've got reporting and meetings and all of that jazz. If you are at a regional level, all of those responsibilities are the same but they're now spread out over a larger area and possibly with more people. And if you can get a larger area, you might even get a larger endowment, which means you might be able to hire staff to help facilitate these processes. What's interesting, uh, when you look at the provincial level, this is where it gets a bit more challenging because you've got so many diverse interests. You mentioned the Calgary and the Alberta landscape, um, but almost every province has a one or two dominant cities maybe a spattering of five or six medium-sized cities, and then you get small cities, small communities, northern communities, and, and then the rest of the folks that are living there. Trying to operate a foundation for everyone becomes a bit challenging because everyone's needs are a bit different. Um, so what we've seen across the country when we look at the provincial foundations is a movement towards creating a community envelope or a separate community account within the provincial foundation. So here in Nova Scotia, the Community Foundation of Nova Scotia um, is one provincial entity, but it has community-specific bank accounts, essentially. So Lunenburg has their own account, and they can raise money for their endowment, and it's invested as a general strategy for the entire foundation, but at the end of the day, they return the interest for the Lunenburg Fund, and that advisory group then determines how to spend that money. 
And so that's how it can work really well. And this is what actually comes out of Nebraska, out of the United States, where they have one foundation for the entire state, and every municipality, county, and, and town has their own bank account underneath the community foundation's umbrella. Um, and that means then your community is not responsible for the, the back office, bookkeeping, and the tax reporting, but rather they're essentially out to find money to be invested and figure out how to spend money. You looked at two foundations in Canada in depth. Most recently, we did a study with two community foundations, um, one in Manitoba in Verdun, in southwestern Manitoba, and the other one in Sussex in New Brunswick. Um, and both are in small communities of under 10,000. Both have a very different history uh, and both do very different activities. Are they successful? Both of them would say they're absolutely successful. Both of them would also say that they've not reached their ultimate goal. They're still on the path to reach some of their big-term, long-term goals. Uh, they're making progress towards them uh, and are doing some really interesting work. But at the same time, they're also, um, as they start to become successful and as they start to build legitimacy and are seen as um, authentic or um, legitimate, for lack of a better word, um, other people in the community start to turn to them. And this sometimes helps facilitate their, their mandate, but at other times actually hinders their mandate. Um, so one of the stories we heard about was that the community foundation in New Brunswick was actually getting really, they supported a lot of um, social service delivery that used to be actually delivered by the provincial government. And so as the provincial government pulled out, the community foundation started to step up and to fill that gap. And there was great concern that they're able to do it really successfully but by them doing it successfully, it meant that the province was able to abdicate their responsibility. And so instead of this being a provincial responsibility, the foundation actually ended up taking it on. The foundation isn't interested in sponsoring the same activity every year after year, but at the same time, they're not prepared to step away from an essential service that people in their community depend on. And so as they got successful, they've actually picked up what they would refer to as the slack that government has let go on the line um, on the main street of these communities. Likewise, we heard out of Manitoba and Verdun um, stories where community organizations that um, were no longer active, um, voluntary organizations like the cemetery, where they were updating and maintaining and had records that simply had run their mandate, were now being were gifting their assets to the foundation because they were seen as an active organization that could carry out and do work in the community. They were robust, they had leadership, they had energy and momentum, and so others turned to them to then deliver some of their activities. And so it's quite an interesting landscape of how foundations are active in their communities, how they're maybe active in areas they didn't ever envision, um, and how some of that is actually to their benefit because they're actually delivering services on the main street that people see more and more, which actually causes people maybe to give second thought to providing further funds to their activities. I'm still struggling a little bit when I look at these foundations with, with the notion that we are back, especially New Brunswick is a great example, right? So we are asking these small communities that are struggling with many issues, often out of their control. Mm -hmm. They may be, these issues could be a result of commodity, global commodity prices, they can be a result of an international trade treaty, whatever. You bet. So you are asking them to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. That's right. Um, 
Is that fair? Is it sustainable? I think it's a fair question to ask communities to think about where do they want their wealth to go? Wealth is incredibly mobile. So I think that it is absolutely fair to ask people where do they want their wealth to be? The challenge is most people have never thought about that question. Um, and this is where I think we need to start a bit of an awareness around you as an individual have options about where your wealth goes today and tomorrow. And you can choose for your wealth to go into bank account in Hong Kong for investments. You can choose to put it on the main street. You can put it in investment bonds in your provincial government. But those are active choices that you make. Each of those choices comes with, with implications and consequences. And so at the end of the day, if the question is, where do you want your money to go? And if you want to put it into your community, or, and it's not to say all of your money should go to your community, but it's a question of where do you want to give some of your wealth? What would you do with your wealth, um, and how would you like it to, to be active at, while you're living or while you're, after you've died uh, on that front? So it's a fair question to ask. Uh, I think it's an unrealistic expectation that every community would have a foundation. That's beyond some communities' capacity, and for some places it doesn't make sense. Sometimes it makes sense on a regional level. Sometimes it makes sense on maybe two cities collaborating or two communities collaborating. So it's unrealistic to say every community in the next five years needs to have a foundation. Not going to happen. But I think it is a fair question to ask people where they want their wealth to go, what they want their wealth to do, and then to start the conversation of does it make sense for philanthropic activities around the long-term sustainability of their community. And if it does, community foundations might be the model. There's other models out there as well that they might choose to look at. I think it's also a question that government should be asking or thinking about. If this is a good idea, if there are benefits, how can they actually help to grease the wheels? How can they facilitate the process of maybe starting the conversation? How could they maybe even encourage further donations? You know, perhaps it is a maybe an incentive on your taxes that if you're donating to a local place-based endowment, you get a 10% rebate on the amount that you've donated, for example. And this would be a way that government could facilitate more wealth being transferred within the community today and tomorrow, um, which will have all sorts of long-term implications that might even actually save government money down the road. That question of where does wealth go, what should we do with wealth, and what do we want as benefits from wealth, need to be asked by researchers, need to be asked by government, need to be asked by communities. And it's not an easy conversation. It's not an easy answer. But it's one, I think, that many communities have already started, and I would encourage those that haven't to, to think about it. Thank you for listening to Rural Roots. My name is Boyan First and I work at the Leslie Harris Center of Regional Policy and Development at Memorial University of Newfoundland in St. John's. This show is produced in collaboration between the Harris Center, Canadian Rural Revitalization Foundation, and Rural Policy Learning Commons Partnership, bringing together rural scholars and policymakers in Canada and abroad. The show is supported through a Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada grant. In this episode, I spoke with Dr. Ryan Gibson, a geographer at St. Mary's University in Halifax.
Ryan studies community foundations and their role in community economic development. He has provided some resources and you can find them on our website at ruralrootspodcasts.com. That's all one word, rural, R-O-U-T-E-S, podcasts.com. If you have any questions about the show, you can email us from the website. If you would like to get in touch with Ryan, his contact information is there as well. If you listened to Rural Roots on your campus or community radio, please let them know if you like the show. If you listen to the podcast version of the show, feel free to encourage your local radio station to get in touch if they are interested in broadcasting the program. The show is available to community and campus radio stations free of charge through the National Campus and Community Radio Association Program Exchange. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join us next week. To subscribe to the podcast, visit ruralrootspodcasts.com. That's all one word, rural, R-O-U-T-E-S, podcasts.com. I'm Boyan Fierst, and you just listened to Rural Roots. Stay in touch. <laughs>